A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's the end of an era in Cuba. Leadership is leaving the hands of the Castro family for the first time in six decades. We take a look at the state of the country and its ambitious vaccine development program. And if you thought that last year's lockdowns would lead to fewer road accidents, you'd be right according to early data from America. But if you thought that, in turn, would mean fewer fatalities on the roads, you'd be wrong. First up, though. The roads outside Myanmar's government offices are splattered with red paint. Protests against February's military coup are unrelenting, and demonstrators are trying to shame the generals. The paint represents blood spilled as the army's campaign grows increasingly brutal and indiscriminate. A week ago on state television, the announcement that 23 protesters would be put to death. Hundreds are already dead, but the resistance is undeterred. Strikes and boycotts are strangling the economy. On the country's fringes, Rebel militias made of ethnic minorities that have fought the government for decades are banding together. And external pressure is rising. Targeted international sanctions are stacking up. This week, the UN's Human Rights Commission lambasted the army's crackdown. The military seems intent on intensifying its pitiless policy of violence against the people of Myanmar, using military-grade and indiscriminate weaponry. There are clear echoes of Syria in 2011. Aid and investment are all but frozen. Just today, a South Korean steelmaking giant called POSCO said it would halt plans for a joint venture. The country is fast heading toward becoming a failed state, but both sides of the conflict are dug in, determined and seemingly fearless. The Burmese military is gunning down people from all walks of life. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. Students, activists, taxi drivers, Even children, they've killed scores of children. And even in the face of that danger, people are are still protesting in in big numbers. Yeah, that's right. They're still demonstrating, but these demonstrations have got much smaller since the military started cracking down. They're also boycotting companies linked with the military and goods produced by the military. Thousands and thousands of workers are striking, which is really um, punishing the economy. Many people have taken a much more aggressive stance when it comes to fending off attacks from soldiers. They're defending their neighborhoods by building barricades. They're even attacking soldiers and police officers. Some have killed troops. And hundreds of people from the center of the country are traveling to the borderlands, territories that are controlled 
by ethnic minority militias with the intention of getting military training from these militias. So even though the protests themselves are are smaller, it sounds as if fighting is is escalating in in many ways on both sides here. Yeah, absolutely. The, The army has become this occupying force It's set up bases in schools, universities, and and monasteries. And and, and that gives them a vantage point from which they can more easily, they hope, crush protests, which they're doing by literally gunning people down. Just last week, the army massacred 82 people in this town in the center of the country called Bago. Local activists from that town um, say the army is actually charging families about $85 to retrieve the bodies of their loved ones. They'll conduct midnight raids in residential areas where they'll conduct house-to-house searches looking for people that they believe oppose them. They'll start indiscriminately shooting rubber bullets, even live rounds into houses, and they'll drag people out of their houses and start beating and arresting them. Over 3,000 people have now been jailed, and some of these people have been tortured. And what about the the former civilian leadership who have been pushed out of power and and Aung San Suu Kyi with them? Well, Aung San Suu Kyi is under house arrest. She hasn't actually been seen in public since the coup on February 1st. Just this week, her lawyer said that a sixth charge has been leveled against her. These charges range from the kind of ludicrously minor, so she's alleged to have improperly imported walkie-talkies, to the much more serious. She's also accused of violating the Official Secrets Act. So the resistance is pinning its hopes on a bunch of MPs from her political party who managed to evade arrest. They have formed a group called the Committee Representing Piedong Sukluta. Piedong Sukluta is the Burmese for legislature. So the CRPH is a kind of provisional government and they are seeking legitimacy and help from foreign governments. And they're also trying very hard to court ethnic minorities in Myanmar. Many of these minorities have been fighting for independence from the Burmese for decades. So the CRPH is hoping that it will be able to strike an alliance with these militias and form what it's calling a federal army. So far, 10 of these militias have expressed their support for this provisional government. And if the CRPH succeeds and and gets all of those ethnic militias on side, does that present a real threat to to the military? This alliance of rebel groups would have little chance of beating the army in open combat. The army is this enormous force. It has 350,000 soldiers. With that said, if these rebel groups were to start acting in concert and forcing the army to fight on several fronts, that would definitely spread the army thin and maybe erode the morale of its soldiers. And while all of this is going on, you say there are general strikes and and people boycotting army-led businesses and so on. What's the economy looking like at the moment? The economy is in really bad shape. The World Bank thinks it's going to shrink by 10% this year. Others think it will contract by even more. Because of these strikes, you have customs agents, dock workers, lorry drivers, rail workers all on strike. Supply chains are breaking down. Businesses are having a really, really hard time operating, as you might imagine. And a lot of that's down to the fact that the banking system is in paralysis. Most bank branches um, are closed because they don't have any 
staff. Foreign investors are getting cold feet and suspending investments and indeed just abandoning the country. Foreign donors have frozen aid. Public services, because of these mass strikes, have really largely ceased. Tax collectors, teachers, doctors have walked off the job in droves. So what we're seeing is the apparatus of the state breaking down. Myanmar is on the brink of becoming a failed state. And for all their firepower, it seems that the, the army is, is kind of beset on all sides. I mean, how long can they, they stand all of this breaking down around them? They're in this for the long haul. They can afford to suffer large casualties. And the protesters' tactic of, of trying to induce economic collapse is also not likely to personally affect the generals because the generals are involved in the trafficking of Myanmar's natural resources. They can probably weather the collapse of the formal economy. But there is an international dimension to this as well. You say foreign money has all but frozen both in aid and and investment. I mean, what what can the international community do to, to help things along here? So there are a few things that countries can be doing. The first one is is the most obvious. No country should recognize the junta. More could impose sanctions on the generals and their businesses. In Asian countries have historically been wary of doing this, but given the generals' exposure to those economies, that would really, really help. ASEAN, the club of Southeast Asian countries, could suspend Myanmar's membership. Um, a global arms embargo could be imposed. So China, India, and Russia are currently the army's biggest weapons suppliers. The international community could press the army to release political prisoners like Aung San Suu Kyi. And they could start talking to the shadow government, which is operating near the Thai border. If the world doesn't do more, Myanmar is going to tear itself apart. Thanks very much for joining us, Charlie. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Cuba is poised to be governed by a non-Castro for the first time in six decades. This weekend at the Communist Party Congress, 89-year-old Raul Castro will stand down as first secretary and commander of the armed forces. Announcing the change five years ago, Mr. Castro said it was due to the law of life that the Congress would be passed on to new roots under the banner of revolution and socialism. La bandera de la revolución y el socialismo. President Miguel Díaz-Canel, at a sprightly 60, is set to take Mr. Castro's place. The Congress's slogan is unity and continuity, and the transition isn't expected to bring any major policy changes. The country's vaccine development program will continue, an ambitious effort somewhat at odds with the country's dismal economic fortunes. Earlier this year, Cuba ended the distortions of its dual currency system. But things haven't much improved, 
And as is almost perennially the case, there are still shortages of basic goods. Cuba's economy at the moment has certainly seen better times. In its deepest recession since the special period in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union. Roseanne Lake is The Economist's Cuba correspondent. The economy shrank by 11% last year, and a lot of that was due to sanctions that the Trump administration rolled out right at the end of the president's tenure, and obviously the coronavirus, the lockdown, and the very significant drop in tourism, which is a very important source of income for Cuba. And how is the country doing in terms of the pandemic? It's probably at its worst point since the start of the pandemic. Havana's seeing about 1,000 cases a day, which is 20 times higher than it was at the end of 2020. But Cuba does have a, a strong health system. There was a big emphasis on preventative care. As soon as people test positive, they are isolated, so they are doing what they can to prevent the spread of it. But I think one of the big issues they're facing at the moment is while the rest of the world has started mass vaccination campaigns, Cuba hasn't. They're very late to the game. They refuse to join COVAX, a vaccine distribution network championed by the WHO, and instead are determined to develop their own vaccines. They've got two currently in phase three clinical trials, and they've developed a total of five. Five of them. Why are they so determined to develop their own vaccines? Oh, well, there's a very long and colorful history to explain why that happened. After the revolution in 1959, half of the island's doctors and medical talent fled abroad, and Fidel Castro was very determined to rebuild it. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, and they actually needed to find ways to make their own money, he decided that healthcare, and in particular Cuban pharmaceuticals, were going to save the Cuban economy. And he wanted the vaccines and the medicines developed in Cuba to be the next sugar, to be the big export that saved and sustained the Cuban economy. You know, he was very determined to do this. And he kept investing in the sector, even when there was very little money, right? So in the 1990s, the GDP shrank by a third in three years. But Cuba opened the Center of Molecular Immunology in Havana, which has become a very important institution for the development of, of various drugs and medicines. But it came at such a high opportunity cost at the time. I spoke to Ricardo Torres, who is a Cuban economist. And he explained to me, essentially, there was no money for food. But there was this brand new cancer research facility that was expected to be worth sacrifice. And was it? Has that sacrifice paid off? Unfortunately, that has not been the case. Cuba produces 5 million doses of simple or combined vaccines for various diseases for domestic use alone, and it exports some. But the money that it gets from those exports is nothing near enough to save the economy or even to just keep it relatively comfortably afloat. And I guess the key thing to keep in mind there is the reason that Cuba's vaccines and medicines and pharmacological discoveries have not been as profitable as expected is that not a single one has been approved for use in a highly regulated market. And when drugs don't hit highly regulated markets, they don't fetch the prices that, that would save an economy. So talk me through them. What are the COVID vaccines that are currently in development? So there are five in development and two that they have in clinical trials at the moment. So the first is Soberana 2. Soberana means sovereign. So it's not subtle about the names that it chooses for its vaccines. It's developed by Biopharma Cuba, which is a state-owned biotech company. It's a two-dose vaccine. And so far, more than 44,000 participants have been vaccinated. And they're on to the second round now. And 100,000 doses of this same vaccine have also been shipped to Iran for further trials there. The idea is that Cuba will produce 100 million doses by the end of the year. 
possibly selling some to allies like Venezuela, possibly offering them to tourists as jobs, you know, a friendly little job while you're on the beach. They can maybe pack up the second dose if they don't plan to stay on the island for the entire duration needed between the two doses. So I suppose the, the economic victory of this remains to be seen, but, but surely there's uh, something of a, a patriotic victory here. Well, I don't know if it's a victory, but the Communist Party has certainly played up the propaganda around the vaccines, right? So the other ones also have equally grandiose names. You have Mambisa, which is a nasal spray. It's named after the guerrillas that fought against Spanish colonial rule. And then you have Abdala, which is also in phase three clinical trials, named after a play by the revolutionary hero Jose Martí. And state-run newspapers have also filled their headlines with things like capitalism results in superfluous health care and socialism delivers it in just the right dose. They're certainly not being mm, modest about these advances. And uh, health officials have recently announced plans to vaccinate nearly all residents of Havana by the end of May which would mean that in tandem with the clinical trials, they're planned to start vaccinating the population on sort of a, a larger scale. But ultimately, Cuba doesn't produce any of its own inputs. This is something that plagues its economy from everything to drug development to getting bottled water on the shelves, right? A lack of plastic bottles means that there's no drinking water on the shelves. And just like a lack of vials might impede a speedy rollout of the vaccine. So it is, on the one hand, very impressive that they've managed to do this, but there is the cost of getting off to a later start, and we have yet to see how supply chain issues may interfere with the speedy rollout of the vaccination overall. So the Congress this week that, that marks the end of, of the Castro's rule in Cuba, I mean, do you think that the Castro's successor will be as keen on, on the, the pharmacology and the, and the primacy of medicine as they have been? Well, Miguel Díaz-Canel, who is expected to become the first secretary of the Communist Party, is a prolific tweeter. And one of his favorite hashtags is Somos Continuidad. We are continuity, right? Which is a pretty clear indicator that he doesn't really have plans to subvert the thinking or the pace of reform established by his predecessor. I think the study or the pursuit of pharmacological developments will always remain high on the radar. I just hope that economic development and economic progress does too, because there's only so much continuidad or continuity that Cuban people can handle. Roseanne, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Jason. One hoped-for benefit of the pandemic was that lockdowns would lead to a drop in traffic fatalities. With fewer cars on the road, the idea goes, fewer accidents happen and fewer people die. But early numbers from America seem to show that that line of logic doesn't hold. The National Safety Council estimates that fatalities on American roads rose by 8% in 2020 over 2019. Matt Lerner writes for The Economist. And that's even though that Americans drove 13% fewer miles in 2020 than in 2019. So that means that per mile traveled, roads have gotten a lot deadlier. So fewer cars on the road, fewer miles being driven. I mean, why would more people be dying? There's a lack of nationwide data, but we do have preliminary data for California. And that data indicates that drivers in California haven't become more accident prone. Collisions fell more than miles driven. So 24% versus 13%, but the crashes were more deadly and they caused death about 20% more often than in 2019. But why would the crashes that do happen be more deadly? 
The preliminary California data indicates that drivers may be behaving more recklessly on the roads. So one factor, for example, might be seatbelt wearing. So the absolute number where officers recorded unfastened seatbelts as being a factor in the collision rose by 5%. And there are reasons to think that driving has possibly become more reckless in 2020. And what evidence is there for that? In the California data, which lists causes and factors in collisions, it appears as though alcohol and drug use, speeding, and running red lights are increasingly factors in accidents. Americans have been drinking more alcohol during the pandemic and binging more often, and there's some evidence that speeding is more common. Early in the pandemic, the number of tickets for going over 100 miles an hour doubled in California and Iowa, and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration reports that speeds in a number of cities rose by 22%. And that's borne out in the data, which shows that where speeding was a factor, collisions became more fatal, suggesting that drivers were going faster. One possible explanation for this is that reductions in congestion and in law enforcement may have emboldened risky drivers. And is there reason to believe this is happening all over the country, or is it concentrated in certain places? Do these California data really represent a national trend? We have a few reasons to suspect the national trend is represented in the California data. One is that when we look at the California data in detail, rural areas where roads are less crowded accounted for a disproportionately high share of traffic fatalities. But that gap shrunk during 20. So as urban roads became more sparse, drivers started seemingly treating them more like rural ones and getting in more of the types of accidents that you'd see in less crowded roads. In addition, California does have a pretty sizable proportion of the nation's drivers, so we view it as broadly representative. So do you think this is a trend that's confined to the strange conditions of last year and people being locked down and so on, or will they continue, do you think? So that's unclear. I talked to a few experts, one of whom suggested that the mental strain of the pandemic is responsible for some of this reckless behavior. That, for example, people who are preoccupied but might be more willing not to wear their seatbelts, for instance, which is a big factor that makes crashes more likely to be deadly. Another thing to recognize is that although fatalities have spiked in 2020 relative to 2019, America does have very persistently high traffic fatalities to start with. Even as States have started to open up in 2021. There's some evidence that traffic collisions and fatalities are actually remaining high. Matt, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Hannah Mourinho, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskin. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd-Evans, and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating... Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.